Welcome to From X to Z, the ultimate cross-generational conversation on health, wellness, and self-care. Guided by inspiring Gen Z trailblazers and expert voices. I'm your host, Vicki Cornwall. Get ready for eye-opening insights and actionable tips that transform your life. Welcome to this episode of From X to Z podcast. Today, we have an exceptional guest, Dr. Kelly Butler a resident physician at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, who is deeply committed to serving marginalized communities and advocating for social justice and health equity. Dr. Butler's inspiring journey began with a passion for serving underserved communities, and she has since pursued various educational pursuits to address disparities and advocate for change. As a resident in family medicine, she continues her mission to provide compassionate care to vulnerable communities including those affected by substance use disorder and addiction. In this episode, we'll dive into essential topics related to substance use, mental health, and advocacy as Dr. Kelly Butler answers questions such as, what are some misconceptions about substance use disorder and addiction? How does substance use disorder impact mental health? Or what are the early signs of developing a substance use disorder? Prepare for an engaging conversation is Dr. Kelly Butler shares her expertise and experiences, offering valuable insights on these crucial topics. Join us to learn how we can work together to create a compassionate and understanding world for those facing substance use challenges. Let's make a positive impact together. Welcome, Dr. Kelly Butler. Welcome to From X to Z. Thanks for having me, Vicki. Absolutely, absolutely. We're super excited to talk with you today. You're going to shed some... Uh, some important light on some on the, on the subject here that I think that um, a lot of people have you just read about or potentially may have experienced themselves in one either themselves or or someone in their life. But uh, this is a good conversation to have. So I'm really I'm I'm really happy that we're having this conversation. So you are in your um, your resident right now, right? So how's that going? Residency is in a is a ride. It's a roller coaster. Uh, I'm in my third year, which is my last year as a family medicine resident. I know you interviewed one of my co-residents, which is awesome. We are both sisters yeah. in the struggle. It's also really cool though, because now I'm the grown up. I'm kind of the top dog. I'm the person who's the most senior uh-huh. in a given clinical space. I am the most proximal to the knowledge base of some of our supervisors of all of the residents. And that's uh-huh. a really exciting and welcome challenge. I've let go of some of my imposter syndrome this year, which has been really cute for me. I know everybody. Oh, that's lovely. That is lovely. And doing a lot of planning around the next step. Now we have to think about what real life looks like after years and years and years of training in school. Now I actually get to think about a job. I'm doing more training. So that's, that's the gag. But at least in the meantime, it's, it's thinking about the next step in a real way. That's not just not just about hoping someone lets me do the next thing. Right. 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 Yeah. So how did you uh, decide to go down this amazing path of, of, of medicine and health as a career? So I was not some all my life I knew type, but I did have the wherewithal to know that I was good enough in the sciences and I wanted to work with people. Mm. My, initial inkling when I went into college is I wanted to study language. I wanted to study linguistics. I wanted to be an interpreter. And oh, wow. I thought it was the most fascinating 
entry into the human experience. My mom was like, with what job, mm. with what money, with whose tuition? <laughs> <laughs> and here I was, you know, doing well enough in bio and knew that I wanted to affect social change. I knew I was really interested in the human condition and none of that necessarily left me. But then I was able to shadow under one of my dad's frat brothers in the Howard University Hospital in the ED. Mm-hmm. in the emergency department. And I was like, oh, this is the human condition. Like this is the version of front lines that I had never mm. known that a physician could be a part of. And here I was. And I ended up declaring a major my sophomore year, went straight through to med school, didn't take any time to do much else. And here I am mm. a decade later. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that I, I could do... Uh, an episode just on talking to people in the medical field about what they what they were going to do before they decided to go into medicine because I've I actually have yet to find one to say I've always wanted to do this that you with language you know why not why not yeah and I had examples I wasn't somebody's first generation anything um, I had hmm. examples but I just didn't know no no this was for me until I really got to see it. I think that's what really changed for me. And it's continued yeah. to make sense. So I haven't left it. You mentioned you shadowed um, your dad's frat brother. Well, was that the person that really was your inspiration um, going into this field? Or was there something else in your life that you know was really stood out to you? He was the person that gave me the experience. And so I owe a lot to his even letting me follow him around. I think one of my ahas was definitely in that emergency room. So if I had to dedicate the person, it would be the patients that I saw, not necessarily the Uh. physician. It was the patients. It was also this very real reality check for me that so much of medicine and so much of health happened outside of an exam room, happened outside of a clinical setting. So if you read my medical school personal statement, I talk a lot about influence and impact, not necessarily... I loved the, the, the intricacies of human physiology. It was, I loved what a physician can do for a person. And I also loved the, let's be real, the pedestal that physicians are placed on in society. Right. I knew that I would right. have a voice that was pretty unparalleled. Ben Carson ran for president. And we were like, mm-hmm, sure. And it's only because he was a physician, not necessarily because he had this robust political <laughs> acumen and, and resume. We let him be secretary of 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 housing and urban development. Why? Because we assumed the man was competent enough. We assumed his intelligence. He must be smart. Now I'm not going to compare myself to a bank, (laughs) to a bank person, but still the idea is there though, right? The idea that physicians can be these change agents while having this really intimate relationship with a person for a living. I was Mm -hmm, sold. mm -hmm. I was sold. And that was solidified in that experience working with Dr. Fernando Daniels in the Howard University Hospital ED. Okay. So your specific path that you're kind of going down is focused on um, substance use disorder. How did you kind of come about about going down that path? Like how, you know, there's there's a lot of different uh, paths out there. Why did you choose that one? It was an accident for real. I went into med school being like, I'm about to be a doctor for and by and with Black people. That's what I became a doctor to be. And then I showed up to UC Irvine, which is situated in a mostly white, Latinx, Asian diaspora that is a county of like maybe 2% Black people. And it Mm -hmm. had this really outstanding wealth gap. 
just the delineation between the north side of the county in Orange County, California, and the south side of the county is stark um, in its racial makeup, its its socioeconomic makeup, its its government's attention to social services and resources. It was fascinating. And I ended up finding my home in advocacy in this group of interdisciplinary students, community workers, volunteers, some med students who were trying to establish the county's first needle exchange program. And I came in a critic. I came in a cynic. What do you mean you're going to hand needles to people who inject drugs? How would that ever make sense? What I learned is that that was rooted in harm reduction. It was a language that I didn't know how to speak yet, and they taught me how to speak it. It was this idea that if someone's going to engage in a behavior that could be harmful, let's keep them alive in the meantime. Let's make that they make sure that they at least don't die of communicable preventable illness. Let's make sure that they at least have, you know, the, the, the tools, skills, and knowledge to keep themselves safe in the meantime. And if they want to then right. enter treatment and pursue sobriety eventually, great. Let's help them do that too. It was also this experience of understanding the really beautiful interplay between grassroots organizing and community organizing and politics and public health. There was this really Mm. unique intersection that I found that I knew I wanted to work in for black folks under the guise of here's this group that has historically been denied access to social services. Here's this group that has been otherwise overlooked by society. The only difference in that interplay between, you know, community organizing and politics and public health now is that I was focused on addiction, not black folks. Now it's not like my my clientele wasn't that, but, um, it was the same things that got my gears turning around being a doctor in the first place at Howard could now be put into practice just with a different population. And then I realized what kind of impact I could have there. And here I am. When you and I, um, initially spoke, you schooled me on the difference between substance abuse and substance substance use disorder. Break that down for us. Sure. So the idea that I was trying to get at when we first connected, Vicky, was this idea that stigma plays a huge role in substance use. If people mm-hmm. are made to believe that their behavior is somehow bad, dirty, unwanted, what are the odds that they're going to then consult me to help them lower if people feel like they're going to be looked down on or down upon just for entering a clinical space just because of how they live their life it's going to make it a lot harder to move through our system and so language matters in this context because Mm. stigma matters in this treatment context if we want to get into what substance use disorder actually means I, I would love to offer the definition um, just so people actually know what that is. I, I made sure to look it up so I could quote the actual words out of the DSM. <laughs> uh, the DSM being our sort of diagnostic Bible for all things behavioral health. Um, okay. There are several criteria that one must reach in order to diagnose substance use disorder. And okay. the, the, the summary of it is you are using a substance in a way that is affecting your life in a negative way. Mm. So mm-hmm. there are several criteria. If you're using substances in larger amounts or for longer time than you intended to, if you wanted to cut down and you tried but couldn't, if you spent a lot of time either trying to obtain, use, or recover from the effects of that substance, if you're experiencing cravings or desire to use that substance, that might be in our, our criteria around impaired control over that substance use. 
then there's social impairment. If it's, a bil- if it's impairing your ability to fulfill major obligations at work, at school, in your family dynamics, if you're using despite social pressure to stop, if you have needed to reduce use be- in order to engage in some sort of social or occupational activity, but mm. you couldn't, that might be social impairment. Then you come into risky use. If you were currently using this substance in unsafe environments, for example, the person that's sharing needles with another person that I was trying to prevent in my needle exchange work, or if you're using despite the negative effects that that substance use might have on your physical, emotional, mental well-being, that's risky use. Risky use, okay. And the last kind of grouping of things is about the pharmacologic, like physiologic response in your body. Are you needing to use more and more of that substance in order to achieve the desired effect? When you don't use it, do you feel withdrawal? Those are our pieces around the kind of physiologic or pharmacologic response. We grade how severe this substance use disorder is by how many of those Mm -hmm. criteria that you meet. It could be mild, moderate, or severe. Okay. And so when we talk about substance abuse, that could just be you drink too much coffee. That could be substance, quote unquote, abuse. Abuse, right? right? Versus a substance use disorder is when we're talking about how is this negatively affecting your life? And I I hope that if there is a person who is listening to this conversation, listening to my my running through these criteria and you're seeing yourself in that, that you ask for help for someone like me. Right, right. Let's talk about some of the stigmas associated um, around around that term substance abuse. But then beyond that, um, let's talk about the misconceptions around substance use disorders in in general. Well, I would always I would almost want to turn it back on you, though, Vicky, because you are coming to the space as the as as not the subject matter expert. What are some things that you immediately associate substance use with? When you think about substance abuse, um, it, there's nothing good that comes from it, right? You, you tend to think, oh, um, they might, they must not be, they must not care about themselves mm-hmm. or someone around them. Mm-hmm. Um, they are not able to function appropriately in certain settings. Um, I think the biggest thing to me is, is just the idea that they don't, they don't care. Right. There's just, there's just a, a perception of they must not care. Mm-hmm. And that's a, I, I really love that you offered that because I guarantee there's someone listening to this that has thought the same. And mm-hmm. I also, am going to be real same, you know, same, like those are thoughts that I came into this field with too, because those are the messages we were taught. Your images of the person that you drinks too much, for example, or drinks in a way that's unhealthy is that they don't necessarily care about the outcome of their drinking. Um, or that they, they're just going to drink themselves to death and they don't really care what kind of effect it has on their liver. We all, we all hold those biases of no fault of our own. There are plenty of messages from the, the legal context that says that you're not even allowed to touch these substances until you hit a certain age because it's known that they will affect you in a way that could be potentially harmful. There is, you know, that's a societal level. There is the, the media portrayal of the, of the junkie, quote unquote, where this is the person that has 
foregone everything else in life that could potentially bring them joy because they are only finding in that substance. There is the right. interpersonal and communal level where there's probably someone in your family who you could pinpoint to say they had an unhealthy relationship and they did not care what that meant for in our family dynamic. And there's a personal, there's an interpersonal relationship with substances of, I know what it felt like when I drank too much and I woke up hungover. I know what it felt like when uh -huh. I had, when I've woken uh -huh. up and not had my morning coffee. Maybe I've dabbled in something that's illicit. Maybe I've smoked a cigarette and that's perfectly legal, but I didn't like the feeling or I did. We have all of those biases from so many different levels. So first, I just want to offer that it's no fault of anyone's that stigma right. exists. It is our fault, though, if we as the medical system don't then practice care that is informed of that trauma, that is informed of that stigma. That is our fault because there is too much information out there to point to the very real physiologic reality that is substance use as, a, as a disease, as a disorder. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also want to offer that stigma plays a role in how individuals then see themselves. People who are using substances who are otherwise battling addiction are often not sitting here proud of it. My patients aren't like, yeah, it's sick that I use fentanyl. I don't think uh -huh, I've ever, uh -huh. ever heard that from someone. Right. Never. There's often this, this voice in the back of their head of like, yeah, I know this isn't good, but I, I just physically cannot because if I don't, I get sick. Beyond that, for my people who are drinking, putting back a liter, a handle of some sort of power, power alcohol a day, the withdrawal is life-threatening. If they stop right. drinking, they could seize and die. So their continuing to drink is not necessarily just because they don't care. It could be because they care so much that they know what it feels like to experience withdrawal. They've had That's a very real, yeah. Before that has lost their life or has otherwise um, been in a really tough spot because of withdrawal. They care so much about how they're perceived that they're not going to enter care. They care so much about how they're perceived that they choose not to engage with family members and excommunicate themselves. They care so mm -hmm. much about their, their physical well-being from day to day that they are going to do everything in their power not to experience the symptoms of withdrawal. Yeah. Um, I always think about when I, Either I'm in a presence or I happen to um, to hear about someone who might be struggling with a particular um, challenge. I think about the 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 mental connection to that as well because there's a physical addiction, but then how does that affect affect their 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 the way they think and and their um, their mental being as a result of that? And then it, I feel like you know all that just kind of piles up piles up on them, mm -hmm. right? makes it that little bit that more difficult to kind of dig, dig out of there wherever they are. Absolutely. I don't think you can divorce mental health from substance use. It's called behavioral health for a reason. And people who are behavioral health providers are often versed in both because they're in they're mm. interconnected and interwoven. A lot of people use to self-treat mental health diagnoses, mental illness. You are treating your own anxiety with a benzo. And then all of a sudden you are using way many bars of Xanax than you plan to, and you've developed a tolerance. And now you have, now you've entered all the various criteria around risky use or impaired, you know, ability to move through life. Um, you are depressed and you find that you lift out of your depression when you use a stimulant. 
So here you are using cocaine. You yeah. suffer from social anxiety and you notice that inhibition drops when you drink and all of a sudden you're drinking just to get through your work day, just to, just to burn an eye opener, just to start the day because you know, <laughs> you knew previously that that allowed you to at least have a conversation at the office party. That's how it starts. Or it's man-made. You broke an arm. We gave you some oxycodone because you broke your bone and you realized how good that first dose of oxycodone oh, felt. And you wanted to yeah. chase that feeling for the rest of your life. Mm. So we cannot divorce the mental health discussion from the substance use discussion. Yeah. And I think if we wanted to move into that, how it affects us generationally, we've been using substances to treat mental health diagnoses since the dawn of time. We love how they make us feel or people wouldn't use substances. Now, if that is the generation X or the baby boomer generation who is using you know, this is not today's marijuana. This is this old school gas is way different than the stuff that y'all are using these <laughs> days, right? We've heard that from our parents, right? Um, or, you know, we had our versions of even what we're calling illicit substances. We had, Gen X had their versions of of drug epidemics that we we are not encountering today. People absolutely lost their lives and are still battling addictions related to crack cocaine that started in the 80s right. and 90s in Gen X, right? Through a series of public health, political, sometimes criminal and punitive <laughs> interventions, we've managed to whittle some of those use disorders down and new ones arose because people are going to continue using substances. That's why harm reduction right. matters because people are going to use drugs. People are going to drink. They're just going to. We've been doing it since the dawn of time, since the dawn of the, 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 the dynasty and empire era when we used opium. People have been using drugs since the dawn of time. Tobacco right. was a major right. export out of Central America and the Caribbean for a reason. People have been using drugs since the dawn of time. People are not going to stop using drugs. What matters, though, is identifying why. And if it is because of some underlying mental health diagnoses, maybe that's something we can treat without a substance. Right. Right. Or with a substance. No shade to antidepressants. We love a good SSRI. Hello. <laughs> Um, so you talked about generations and the different types of, uh, it's almost like the, the trend of, 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 of the jug of choice for different generations. Um, how are young people typically getting introduced or gaining access to, to some of these substances like tobacco, mm -hmm. alcohol, or illicit drugs? Um, and I say this as, as a parent, I've got two little people that, um, that I'm, I'm, I'm you know, responsible for guiding them through this life at this point. And um, I'm like, yeah, um, what I need to be watching out sure. for, help me know. Sure. Yeah, I don't think that the trends and how people are accessing substances are different than they were even in our parents' generation at home or at school is, is kind of the same story that I've at least personally witnessed and anecdotally can say is still true. Um, even by research, I think the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, which is kind of our government governing body around behavioral mm -hmm. health concerns, has stated that they did a, they do they release this annual report every year around substance use trends and such, specifically for folks aged older than twelve. And um, a lot of younger kids are really easily getting their hands on the thing that are already legal. Um, not as much that are illegal. So I, I would just start there. The things that 
you and mm-hmm. I as consenting adults can walk into a drugstore and buy, those are the things that their kids are going to get their hands on first because they're found mm-hmm. in the home and they're really easy to access mm-hmm. from an older sibling, a cousin, whomever. Um, rarely, just in my personal like anecdotal experience as a physician who is working in an urban environment, um, our kids' first first foray into a substance or so- using something that's otherwise illicit is with something that's otherwise illegal in that area. Now, I also practice in California where cannabis is legal. So I'm grouping cannabis in the same category that I am tobacco and alcohol. But rarely in my, in my hearing, my first experience with an illicit substance was cocaine. My first illicit you know, experience was smoking heroin. That's, that's rare. Um, what it usually is, is someone at a party handing me a vape pen. That's what my kids are interacting with now, vaping. We've managed to pretty successfully do away with kind of the 90s, 80s, 90s era. Smoking is cool. Everything is posed with a cigarette. That was my version, like the 90s supermodel, the the cool thing, the the luxury wrap in in a Biggie Smalls kind of portrayal of like cigar in hand. That's not cool anymore. Mm -hmm. When you look at like who's hot today, Meg Thee Stallion is not smoking cigarettes. You know what I'm saying? Like that's not the cue, but... Doja Cat certainly has a jewel on TikTok. That pen, I tell you, I tell so you. So that's our version of what is deemed sexy. It's sexy. Mm-hmm. It's sexy. Again, people are going to use substances. They always will. And they will continue mm-hmm. to. But I think it has morphed. Now the conversation is around vaping. That's the conversation I'm having with my younger kids, um, my adolescence patients, my parents. When they ask me the question, what should I be on the lookout as you kind of are today, Vicky? It's, it's vaping. That's what the kids are doing these yep. days. It yep. really is. And that can then graduate into other things potentially. I don't like to use the gateway argument, but it, it exists. And that's what I'm seeing. So you talk about it graduating. Talk to us about um, the potential risk and long-term effects of even like starting it with e-cigarettes and vaping. The same long-term effects that we know cigarettes can have. We know that smoking is horrible for you. Like no part of your body likes the toxin that is nicotine or the carcinogens that right. come in a cigarette or in a vape pen. No part of our body does. If you want to get into the nitty gritty, what it does is create this, this systemic inflammation and our body reacts in various ways mm. to said inflammation. That might mean building up an artery wall that's tougher with various plaques that shouldn't be there. And all of a sudden you have hypertension and cardiovascular disease that increases your risk for strokes and heart attack. That could mean vascular damage at your kidneys. That could mean literal effects in uh, your lungs. That might mean increasing your risk of developing various cancers. Those risks are not suddenly better because it's a vape pen versus a cigarette. We've just packaged it differently to say that vapes are so much safer than cigarettes. They were initially marketed as these alternatives to cigarettes for the long Yes, yes, they were. But I think the unintended consequence was we marketed it as something that was healthy, but it's absolutely not. It's funny because I would say that almost every conversation I have, uh, social media and the impacts of social media somehow finds its way into that into that conversation. But with the rise of social media and, and online communities, um, what advice would you would you give for um, for the younger generation in navigating the influence of like peer pressure and online and the online culture surrounding substance use? Um, yeah, 
I don't think you can talk about Gen Z without talking about social media. So I bet you that's why it keeps coming up in your conversations. When, if I could offer advice, it would be rewind this podcast back to when I was defining what a substance use, use disorder is and see if you see yourself in that in any way. If you do, go to someone you trust and mention that. Hey, I listened to this podcast and, and mentioned that some of these things can equate to a substance use disorder. I think I'm kind of worried about it. That's the, that's the biggest piece of advice you can do. And to make sure that you are using sources like these, a physician telling you this, instead of the well-to-do influencer who is, who is trying to make a dollar mm-hmm. based on changing your mind about something and influencing a certain behavior out of you. Even if that influencer is a physician, just take it with a grain of salt. If there is a financial interest in offering you that advice, because I'm not being paid to be here. If there's a financial interest in offering you that advice, think twice as it pertains yeah. to kind of the social media realm. But in general, mm-hmm. go back in this podcast, listen to it. And if you see yourself in it, talk to your doctor. Talk yourself, yeah. If you're in Gen yeah. Z, you probably already still connected to a pediatrician. Maybe you've graduated out of it um, and you're seeing a, a family medicine doctor or an internist. If you're not, then let's talk about ways to get you into primary care. Go back to Yumiko's podcast to talk about things that are necessary to check yes. in the primary care. Yes, context. the um, importance of primary care. Absolutely. Hello. Hello, I will die on that hill. Um, but I think just understanding that for yourself is the best piece of advice that I can offer when it comes to substance use. Because the people who are coming to me asking for help in managing addiction, it's because they've already identified how it, how it's not doing well for them. And they just need someone to coach right. them through it. Maybe they need to be conducted to a therapist to reframe how they're using substances. And they need me to fill in the gaps in the, in the physiological context. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But ultimately, they've already tapped into like, this isn't good. Listen to that voice. It matters. Yeah. Um, How, how can someone approach a conversation with like a friend or a loved one um, who might be struggling with, um, with substance use disorder? How, what, what recommendation you have if you are someone you're seeing some, someone close to you, like, "Mm, something's not right here. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling for them. Okay. So you're saying if you were the family member noticing that behavior in a loved one, Mm hmm Coming from it as I care about you and I'm worried about you is probably the best thing that I've noticed in terms of how people have felt supported in their journey to and through sobriety. Um, I also just want to acknowledge that most people's touch points to treatment can be on the order of like, I think the statistics is something between three to seven. Like they have to have tried to achieve sobriety three to seven times before it really sticks. So if you're the person, That's a to know. yeah. So if you're the person who is like, I'm worried about you. I want to help get you into treatment. Acknowledge that just because you managed to get them into one doctor's appointment, it's not over. This is a disease and it's a chronic condition. Just like we say that there isn't necessarily a cure for a diabetes, but we can give you medications, treatments in the meantime to reduce your risk of long-term complications. Is the same thing with substance use. I want to remind everyone that this is a chronic illness. It is a chronic disease. Yeah, and it has to be treated as such. It requires long-term attention. It requires multiple touch points to treatment. It might require multiple touch points and episodes of relapse. And that's just part of the disease process. So first coming in from coming at it from a place of, I noticed this thing in you. I listened to this podcast. I heard these criteria and I thought of you and I'm worried <laughs> about you. Can I help you get to an appointment and be the one that drives them? Don't just say, you go handle it. Because if that person was going to handle it on their own, they would have already but that disease right. process, we talked about it, that it, it brings you into this really intense mental place because of stigma, because of all the things that we talked about. 
And so it might mean you literally driving them to the appointment, driving them to the treatment center, you know, taking them to see the doctor, setting up the therapist appointment for them, opening the laptop, putting, hitting go on Zoom and sitting by their side where they do it or set them up in a room so they can do it, right? That's what it might take. And know that before yeah. you engage in that conversation. If you're not ready to shoot with me in the gym, don't be with me at the championship celebration because that's not helpful. It's the family members that have rode with people as much as is, is capable and possible for them in a healthy way through the entire journey where I see real success in, in rehabilitation. It's the moments of uh, why didn't they just do this thing on their own is where I see a lot of riff happen. It's not, not, not very helpful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if your loved one is now on a path to recovery, what are what suggestions or recommendations do you have for someone to create a more supportive and understanding environment? Oh, I love that question, Vicky. I love that a lot because that's so important. <laughs> First, that you handle that you you know ask this question as as you're moving through this journey. Um, so I think that's just the first point to bring up that it's a journey and it's a marathon, yeah. not a sprint. Right. I don't know that there's a one size fits all to that question as much as I love the question, but I will say that globally, um, what kind of environments they used to use in or that were not helpful and helping them not be in those environments tends to be really helpful. A lot of my patients will have the absolute willpower, the motive, the means to not use but they're still rolling with the same people that they use with. They still live in the same neighborhood mm. as their drug dealer. They still, you know, and some of those things can't be avoided. You can't necessarily right, move. You right. can't necessarily change schools. You can't necessarily change your entire profession. If everyone around you is, you know, using Coke to get through the long work night, like it, it's hard to just say, I'm just going to quit my job. That's not necessarily reality for person, for everyone. But if you can create an environment outside of that one, that's non-negotiable, that, that is more negotiable, that just is free of those substances. Maybe that means that you are not smoking around that person if that person's trying to quit smoking. Maybe that means that you are filling weekends with weekend evenings, for example, with other activities that don't involve substances because that's where that person used to drink a lot. Um, maybe that means you are helping that person make the big move and move out of the neighborhood where they used to cop. Like maybe that's what it is, but I think it has to be asked of that person and an acknowledgement that it's a journey. Yeah, absolutely. That's very, very, um, it's a very interesting thought process to really think about it that way, because I haven't not gone through that myself. If you see someone going through the having, trying, uh, attempting to have empathy, is definitely needed. Attempting to do best your the best you can to have some empathy towards them, I think it's it's definitely something that needs to be considered for sure. And we have these discussions because not all of us experience it personally. I don't actually come from a family that was rocked by addiction. Like, yeah, I had people that smoke cigarettes and cigars in my family and are, you know, dealing with the health consequences of that. But I didn't come from a family of, you know, I wasn't the child of an addict. I, I, I didn't come from that. So you don't necessarily have to be that to, to hold space for those people. I mean, I'm dedicating an entire career around something that I, I've never necessarily experienced either. I don't, I don't have a substance use disorder. And, I'm, and what a blessing it is to be able to say that. My genetics and social happenings and whatever else just made it such that, that that's not a reality for me. But there's someone right. who's listening to this podcast who that is a reality for. 
there's someone who's listening to this podcast who it's not and still wants to be able to be empathetic and interacting with other people. So I hope we can remind ourselves that you don't have to have experienced something personally to care about it. And I think that's kind of the emphasis of your entire podcast endeavor, that you are journeying into these conversations that are not birthed of your own professional journey or your own um, wheelhouse mm-hmm. and are instead mm-hmm. inviting conversations that make sense to the, to the layman. Right. And I think that's dope. Exactly. Just for us to learn from each other, for sure. Absolutely. Across generations, across categories, et cetera. Just learn from each other. Absolutely. From X to Z. Hello. <laughs> hey, um, I have a question for you. It's something I'm, I'm, I'm trying out here asking, asking this question towards the end, looking back at your personal journey, what advice would you give your younger self if you can go back 10 years? And then I'm going to ask the flip of that. 10, years? 10, 10. 10. Okay. If you can go back 10 years, what advice would you give to your younger self now that where you are, you are where you are right now? Mm-hmm. And then the flip of that is reflecting on your experience and insights today, where you are today. What message or reminder would you give your, your future self 10 years from now? Okay, really great that you're asking me this question because we have these integrative medicine healer sessions in our department where we can basically just reflect on kind of who we are, what we are, what we do for a living. And this is one of our prompts and it's a really beautiful exercise. So I've actually been able to give myself some some thought to this. Um, I think my lesson to past self is uh, when you buckle into pursuing a career like medicine, or anything that involves an advanced degree or a doctorate, it's a it's a grueling thing. And you know that you're going to have to sacrifice in order to pursue this mm-hmm. career. I have a twin brother and we joke about how different our 20s were because I'm calling him being like, can you pay the phone bill this month? Because <laughs> I've just been such a serial student and trainee and haven't really made me real money. Um, while he's been, you know, working in finance since we graduated, very different realities. What I would want to tell my my 20-year-old self, though, is to never let go of the opportunity to have fun during it. I have never, ever regretted spending the money on the Coachella ticket, booking the flight, going to see the friends, making the trip to homecoming. I've never regretted any of that. I have, however, regretted missing life events for things that I didn't necessarily have to miss it for. Um, Mm -hmm. I've not regretted working hard. I've not regretted putting the hours in, but I have never regretted spending time to have fun in the meantime because I, how am I supposed to be a good doctor if I'm miserable? Try. How am I supposed That's to right. be good for anybody else? How am I supposed to help you realize <laughs> your full potential if I am suffering because I'm not giving myself the opportunity to do what makes Absolutely. me well or brings me joy? Yep. I also would want to remind my 20-year-old self that the changes that will come in your life are necessary ones for your own growth and to be okay with those changes because I come from a a family of what's the next step? What's the next accolade? What's the next accomplishment? It doesn't leave a lot of room for 
ebbs and flows yeah. and changes. Yeah. Absolutely. And those changes are okay. Those changes are okay. Talking to my future self, mm-hmm. I hope I was able to enjoy the fruits of my labor. I hope I really reaped what I sowed. I hope that I am existing in a family dynamic that's a healthy one and a and a and a loving one. I hope that what I've created my career to be is actually a reflection of all the things that I'm passionate about, not just because the opportunity happened to present itself or this was the most high paying job or whatever that I'm like, I'm really grounded in my passion at the end of this, instead of having, you know, grinded so hard with kind of passion in the background. I hope that passion is at the forefront of what I'm doing because I earned that. You know, I didn't do all this training training to not do what I love. And I've always found joy and a real sense of identity in my job. And I hope that my, my wanting to create impact, the same person that I portrayed myself to be applying to medical school is that person that I am as a physician. Mm. It's not an aspiration Mm. anymore. I also hope that I am leveraging every bit of the access that I gain as a full-fledged attending physician to bring as many people up behind me as possible. That I don't leave that just because I'm not in the grind of training anymore. It's felt like, a, of course, I would be the mentor. Of course, I would sign up for the mentorship program. Of course, I would design the mentorship program because I'm in the middle of training and I have this knowledge because I've, I'm so proximal to the application process. I hope I don't lose that fire just because I've made it now. Right. Um, Yeah, those are some of my reflections. (laughs) I have to say, though, well, having this, when you talked about the joy, having the joy in what you do, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure you know this, but your your patients will, I feel like, have that much more of um, a good experience for sure just dealing with you, but I feel like they probably will will go through their process that much better and, and, and heal that much potentially faster being with a doctor who has joy yeah, in what they're doing because that will come through that will come through yeah. right and each of us everything that we do that element of that that seed of joy touches everything we do and mm-hmm. much more yeah. that much more so as, as physicians having that so I, I appreciate you're saying that people sense really that if you walk into the room and Absolutely. your doctor has a stank face on you sense that you feel that energy <laughs> If I'm Look. delivering your baby and I'm rooting for you and just as excited to be in the room as your mama is, you feel that. And absolutely, I, I absolutely. want people absolutely agree that that is that is felt <laughs> and that is part of the patient experience, a hundred percent. Well, thank you so much. Now, where can people contact you if they want to learn more about you, Doctor Butler? Yeah, I'm on the socials and things. My handle on, across all the socials is what KB says goes exactly as it sounds and spelled. That's just my initials. Um, right. And I will probably still be practicing in San Francisco by the time this podcast airs. But, um, you know, pull up on me. I would love to be your doctor. If you're looking for a, a young black woman that cares about the entirety <laughs> of your holistic health, wants to deliver your babies and enjoys talking about addiction, I'm your girl. So pull up on me at my various stages of training. Right now I work in the safety net, so I'm only really accepting patients who um, are on public insurance in San Francisco. But you know what? 
pull up on me wherever I do end up. I'm probably all right, all right. <laughs> Come out to Brooklyn. All right, then. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vicky. I'm glad we had this conversation. It was a good one. Absolutely. As we wrap up this enlightening episode with Dr. Kelly Butler, here are five key takeaways that stand out from our conversation. First, stigma plays a significant role in substance use and language matters in combating stigma. Dr. Butler provided valuable insights into the criteria for diagnosing substance use disorder and the grading of its severity. Next, the reality that mental health and substance use are interconnected cannot be ignored. Many individuals use substances to self-treat mental health conditions. The trends in access to substances have not drastically changed over the years, and vaping has become a concerning issue among Gen Z, leading to potential escalation to other substances. Additionally, if you notice signs of substance use disorder in yourself or someone you know, reaching out to someone you trust or a primary care doctor for guidance can be crucial first steps towards seeking help. And lastly, recovery from substance use disorder is a journey that may require multiple touch points to treatment. It is a chronic disease that demands long-term attention and support. Dr. Kelly Butler's expertise and insights shed light on the complexities of substance use and the importance of addressing stigma to create a supportive environment for individuals in recovery. Remember, by understanding and empathizing with those facing substance use challenges, we can all play a part in fostering a more compassionate and understanding world. Until next time, take care and remember, understanding and empathy can make a positive impact on those around us and the world at large. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. Be sure to click the follow button on your podcast app to stay updated on our latest releases. Connect with us on Instagram and YouTube at From X to Z Podcast for more exciting content. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to reach out with your questions and topic suggestions for future episodes. I'm Eugene X host Vicki, and you've just enjoyed From X to Z, the podcast that bridges the generations.